Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And as I promised last week, we have returned. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. And this is A Different Perspective. I am joined by Nick Redfern, who I will introduce in just a moment. But before I get to Nick, I wanted to make a comment. An airplane has crashed in an area referred to as the Bermuda Triangle. ABC News is pushing this as another mysterious disappearance, and yet the Coast Guard has found wreckage. It's not a mysterious disappearance. It is a tragedy, especially for the families of the people who are lost. But the point is, this is fake news. There is no mystery of a, the Bermuda Triangle. It is an area that is highly tra- traveled, and it is the the, the uh, wrecks of ships and planes in that area is no larger than it is in other areas of the world. So it's a manufactured mystery is what I'm trying to say there, and I, I wanted to get that out of the way first before I picked on poor old Nick Redfern. Uh, Nick's latest book is Roswell UFO Conspiracy, Exposing a Shocking and Sinister Secret. This is, I believe, an update of his book, Body Snatchers in the Desert, which uh, suggested the U.S. government had an experiment using captured Japanese soldiers that went horribly wrong back in 1947. Uh, Nick has written a number of books about UFOs and UFO-related phenomenon. 
I think he is trying to take the record for the most UFO books from Brad Steiger, though uh, there are people who say I have written the most UFO books. Somebody came up to me at the MUFON Symposium in Denver a couple of years ago and asked me if I knew I'd written more UFO books than anybody else, and I said no, and I said I thought it was Brad Steiger. Brad and I have talked about this a couple of times, and he thinks it's me, and I think it's him, and I think Nick is trying to catch us. <laughs> anyway... Um, what we have here is a, uh, a book about uh, – an updated book about what happened in Roswell. I wrote a book, oh, Roswell in the 21st Century, which you all know about, uh, mine suggesting that uh, the evidence is uh, not conclusive as to what happened. Nick has a, uh, a theme of a failed government project, I believe, and we'll discuss that at length here and probably ad nauseum. Nick Redfern, finally, welcome to A Different Perspective. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me on again. <laughs> well, you had a book out to push, so I thought I'd help you out in that arena. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, uh, yeah, when you, it, it's not sort of like an update on the previous book. It's actually sort of like a, a, a brand new book. So it's a sequel, basically, um, to all the new material that's come out or reach me, I should say, since um, Body Snatches in the Desert came out back in 2005, 12 years ago. So this is sort of a like a new book, but, um, you know, providing the new material and so on. But uh, in terms of the number of UFO books, I'm, I'm sure I actually won't catch up either you or Brad. I mean, Brad's close to 200 books now, which is... You know, that's like an incredible number of books. Uh. But Brad has, but they're not all about UFOs. And, well, and we've, narrowed, we've, we've narrowed it to, to UFO books because I've, I've got like 125, 130 books. I've lost count uh, myself. And that includes science fiction, action adventure. I did a murder mystery and uh, a book on lost golden buried treasure. So like oh, most oh. professional writers, I'm all over the place. Yeah. Do you focus mainly on UFOs and that sort of Not phenomenon? Not really. I've done uh, actually, funnily enough, I, I did a count the other day of how many books I've done, and it's forty-one. And of those forty-one, about sixteen or seventeen are on UFOs, um, and then the the majority of the rest of them are my, are my other big interest, which is cryptozoology, and uh, and then there are a few books on on uh, conspiracy theories and things like that. So uh, yeah, I think. Um, you know, two hundred for you know for Brad. That that's hard to beat. You know, <laughs> that's sort of big challenge. <laughs> well, he's he's getting up there in years. I I read the first book he not the first book he wrote. The first book of his I I, I read was uh, while I was still in high school. So I might I might have a shot at catching him. Although my production yeah, has slowed down quite a bit. <laughs> Uh, but I'm still ahead of you in the UFO books, and and I've done a bunch of science fiction as well, which comes back to haunt me periodically when people like Stan Friedman say, well, you know, you can't trust what Kevin Randall said. He writes science fiction, too, <laughs> which is absolutely preposterous thing to say because I can point to a number of UFO researchers who write science fiction, and not only that, I can report to a, point to a number of scientists who write science fiction. Yeah. So it's a, a – a, a genre that uh, kind of transcends all of that sort of thing. And I've managed to carry this conversation on long enough that we've uh, just about run out of time. Uh, we will be back in just a few moments with Nick Redfern. We're going to learn more about his book and less about my writing career when we get back uh, in just a few minutes. So hang around.
This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Hello, I'm Pete Marsh. With my daughter Justina, we will be presenting the new radio show, Too Good to Be True. If something seems too good to be true, it usually is. But with the help of Justina's amazing gifts, we're going to gain insight into questions that don't yet have complete answers. Have you wondered who built Stonehenge and for what reason? Why are crop circles found in the same region as Stonehenge and elsewhere? Are crop circles a hoax or are they created with technologies that we have little knowledge of? Who built the pyramids in Egypt and also in other countries? How and why were they built? Was the Titanic switched with the Britannic as part of a gigantic insurance fraud or for more insidious reasons? What caused the Tunguska event when trees were flattened over an 800 square mile area in Siberia? Will the new insights be too good to be true? Well, that will depend on what you are prepared to believe. Please join us as we start on this journey together. For more information on Too Good To Be True, visit www.xzbn.net. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs, 
songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an eight-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night. As promised, I am back. I am joined by Nick Redfern, and I've decided to let him do more talking in this segment than I do. If you want to know more about the Bermuda Triangle thing that I was talking about earlier, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. In the next hour or so, I'll have something up about the latest. uh, Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Tragedy in the Bermuda Triangle. Moving on to Nick Redfern who's written 41 books, which is an impressive number of books to have written. Uh, His latest is called Roswell UFO Conspiracy, Exposing the Shocking and Sinister Secret. So, uh, Nick, what's the shocking and sinister secret? Well, basically, Kevin, as I said earlier, it carries on from my 2005 book, Body Snatchers in the Desert, and it deals essentially um, with human experimentation, if you like, post-Second World War, Japanese equivalents of Operation Paperclip with um, technology and people being clandestinely brought over, and the idea that the vehicle or the craft, however you want to term it, that came down uh, Roswell on the Foster Ranch, outside of Roswell on the Foster Ranch, was a combination of kind of like a, a lifting body and a massive balloon array. Um, and uh, reportedly there may well have been sort of five or six experiments in New Mexico over the course of sort of late 45 through to the summer of 47, which kind of in some cases may have blended into the Roswell legend, some aspects of these other events. Um, well, let me, let me break led- in here. Let me break mm-hmm. in here and get a couple of points uh, for, for people who may yeah. not be aware of this. Uh, in, in Body Snatchers in the, in the Desert, you were alleging that these were captured Japanese soldiers or Japanese scientists that had been brought over here against their will 
unlike Paperclip, which was sort of getting them out of Germany, but against their will. And then they were the subjects of experimentation in, in some kind of experimentation. Uh, well, you... yeah, I mean, it was partly that, but it was also there were some sort of more controversial stories as well that some of the people in the experiments were were just were American people, but taken from hospitals and asylums and places like that, and and again, like used in in like a guinea pig type fashion. Now, the in the original book, Body Snatchers, um, I use the testimony of five or six different elderly sources and blended it with what we know for sure about things like, you know, the Japanese balloons, um, Unit 731, which was this sort of, um, you know, very dark and disturbing program that the Japanese had on essentially uh, human experimentation. Well, let, me, let, me, let, let, me, let me break in again here. Uh, and I promised I'd let you talk more and I'm not doing it. I don't know why. <laughs> Um, the, the Japanese balloons you're talking about are the Japanese balloon bombs, I believe, aren't they? They were launched yeah. during the Second World War and uh, were responsible for f uh, six deaths here in the United States That's in right. Oregon. And uh, parts of these balloon bombs, and they were designed to start forest fires, burn down factories, cause kind of havoc. Uh, some of them were found as far uh, I guess, east as Michigan. Three were found in Iowa that I know of. They were found in Canada. They were found in Mexico. The Japanese launched about uh, 9,000 of these things and around mm -hmm. 200, 250 actually made it uh, to the North American continent and, and, and delivered their payloads. So you're, you're talking about that technology and you're talking about this um, well, uh, Japanese in unit. A way, that, but, I mean, all the people I spoke to said, you know, the, the Fugo balloons were just pretty much, you know, there wasn't much to them at all. They were just balloons and, you know, very primitive in many respects. But it is a fact that in the closing stages of the Second World War, uh, rumors were flying around that the Japanese had Nagasaki and Hiroshima not being bombed and had the war continue. The, the Japanese were planning on building much bigger and sturdier balloons which would actually have gondolas attached for crews and they might actually have been used in sort of like suicide kamikaze uh, missions and the story i got was that it was the plans and the sort of the you know the the paperwork and the, the personnel that were involved in the design of these huge new massive balloons that they were the ones who came over and that reportedly worked on some of these huge balloon slash um, lifting body experiments. So it wasn't sort of, you know, it didn't involve the, the Fugo balloons, as John Keel believed, but it was sort of post-Fugo balloons. Did you find documentation supporting some of this? Yes, yeah, I mean, there are stories, yeah, I mean, you can find news stories where they talk about um, Japanese so-called death-defying Japanese pilots, um, you know, being in these balloons. And, um, you know, so it's a very controversial angle. But one of the reasons why I wanted to write the update was because, you know, when Body Snatchers came out, a lot of people was ref were referring to it as, you know, Nick Redfern's story or Nick Redfern's theory, not realizing that um, a lot of other people had been given the same story at varying times. And that some, in when Body Snatchers came out, I didn't even know they'd been contacted, but I'll explain what I mean by that. I mean, in 1997, 
um, Popular Mechanics put out an article stating that um, they'd been told of a forthcoming release of documents that would tell concerning Roswell that would tell of a Japanese Japanese equivalent of paperclip. Um, so there's a few stories like that flying around, but the most interesting one, which came from, a, I'm sure you know him, a very well-respected Australian researcher, Keith Basterfield. Now, Keith, um, my book, um, Body Snatchers, came out in 2005, and in the, towards the end of 2005, Keith contacted me because he'd read Body Snatchers, and he said, when I was reading your book, I realised that this is sort of identical to a story that a guy gave him um, sort of like a year earlier. And so we, he told me the story about how this guy had contacted him. He was, uh, his father was a Brit who'd emigrated to, the, to Australia and that uh, Keith had a long chat with this guy personally, in person. Um, and the, the story, again, was very similar. Uh, these sort of huge balloon arrays, lifting bodies, you know, the ability of the two to detach and so on. And something coming down, one of these craft coming down on the Foster Ranch. And it got controversial because there were references to, again, sort of human guinea pigs used in the flight, etc., etc. And... Keith arranged for me to speak to him, and I refer to him in the book as Martin because that's what Keith refers to him as, but uh, we both uh, know his real full name. And I was able to call him from over here in Australia, uh, to Australia um, shortly after Keith uh, told me the story. And he related this account of how, reportedly, there was this sort of huge device, which was, as his father told him, I should just explain this, Martin's father worked in British intelligence in MI5, which is the British equivalent of the FBI. And reportedly, under circumstances we don't know, supposedly MI5 actually had files on Roswell. They knew about the case. And according to what Martin's father told him, that what came down was this gigantic balloon coupled with this lifting body and there was some sort of aerial calamity where the two separated and because of the, the weight of the craft it just came slamming down to the ground but the balloon array being obviously much lighter which shattered came down at another portion on the ranch and the, according to Martin the concern was that that somebody would get there before they did, and sure enough, you know, Matt Brazzle did, and um, and found what, according to Martin, really was balloon wreckage, but not from a weather balloon, and not from a mogul balloon, and not from a Fugo balloon, but one from one of these huge balloons. And he said that the the primary reason for keeping this under wraps wasn't so much that the technology had to be hidden or anything like that, because we're just talking about balloons and gliders. It was because there was this sort of human experimentation angle to it. Now, of course, that well, doesn't well, prove... Um, well, there are a couple of questions. I mean, you're talking about Martin, who we don't know who that is. Yeah. And he's talking about what his father said to him. So yeah. we're we're really kind of far away from the original source on this. We, you, you didn't see any documents, I take it. No, I didn't. But I mean, I had a, an extensive conversation with him. And, understood. Uh, and I, understood. But I'm saying you didn't see any documents. You've got a story no. told by Martin. No, no. No. But I mean, then again, the only documents that sort of, you know, really reference the um, 
the alien angle of Roswell are the MJ-12 documents, which nobody, as I know, takes them seriously anymore, you know. Well, there are a couple of people. We, we won't point any fingers. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, I don't sort of, um, you know, brush off the issues where there are problems. I mean, the big problem with any theory when it comes to Roswell is there's no proof for it. I mean, ironically, despite what some people think, even the Air Force wasn't able to prove that a mogul balloon came down on the on the ranch. They, they, that was their conclusion, but they couldn't prove it. So, in other words, that's but, one but, of the big frustrations the, about Roswell. Uh, but know. I would say, I would say an argument that the mogul explanation, at least we know the experiments were going on, we have documentation about it, and the documentation clearly says there was no mogul balloon launch on the date in question. So we have documentation, and it kind of refutes the idea the Air Force came up with, but we have documentation, and what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to get at here and, and see if I understand properly is that there aren't any documentations about this. This was an event that took place two years after the war, so clearly it wasn't the Japanese doing it. Um, because no, it wasn't the Japanese doing it, you know, from the perspective of like an enemy attack or nothing like that. No, it was reportedly... The like a, a Japanese equivalent of, of Operation Paperclip with Japanese personnel, scientists, etc., clandestinely brought over to work in New Mexico or possibly elsewhere too in the United States. Um, now, one of the things that you know I, I also sort of talk about in the in the new book is the background as to how I met some of the whistleblowers that provided the inform or all the whistleblowers that I. Um, spoke with for the original book and how that came about. Because in the first book, Simon and Schuster, who published it, they just wanted the data. But a lot of people were asking me, well, where did you meet this person? How did you come to meet them? And, and you know, and they were valid points, but Simon and Schuster didn't want it kind of like, you know, a diary of me going, you know, I'm he I headed out to a restaurant to meet this elderly guy. They didn't want it written like that. But the new book, I've included all that material to sort of demonstrate how and why I got the story and where they got the story from about the, you know, this Japanese angle. But, um, but the we're going family style deal because I want a bite of your Big Mac and I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Yeah, I mean, I'll be the first to admit that when it comes to trying to actually verify this story, that's, you know, that is where we hit a stumbling block, 
you know, it's... But one of the things that keeps me on the trail of this angle is the fact that there are threads and links from other people. Now, one sort of little angle, which, um, again, kind of is, is the sort of things I look for, is that when Body Snatchers came out in 2005, well, the, the, the book was actually finished, or the manuscript was finished, um, in 2004. Now, one of the people who in the book I called the Colonel told me that the the flight that went wrong at Roswell was a nighttime flight. Okay, um, let me let me interrupt you here. We're gonna we'll have to come back to this. The Colonel told you it's a nighttime nighttime flight, and we'll we'll explore that a little more deeply when we come back. But I got to take a break here. I will have material up about some of this on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you want to do contrasting and comparisons, you can take a look at Nick's new book, Roswell UFO Conspiracy: Exposing a Shocking and Sinister Secret, and my book, Roswell in the 21st Century, which kind of leaves you hanging because. Because I don't have a real good conclusion. I just have some facts that go along with uh, much of what was said there. So we will be back right after this. So stick around. Dreams are our personal gateways into infinite wisdom. Don't miss Shamanic Counselor and Indigenously Trained Dream Decoder, Sandra Corcoran's inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening Between the Dark and the Daylight. This remarkable work chronicles Sandra's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers and her initiations throughout the Americas and across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt. Sandy's knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth influenced her dream blog and workshops. Sandy offers private tarot readings, international journeys, a meditative CD, as well as her book, Shamanic Awakening, to encourage you as you navigate this earthwalk, creating a deeper connection to yourself and all that is. Find this and more at Sandy's website, starwalkervisions.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Nemology Science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Nemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. 
even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today. Know the name, know the person. Or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. Hello, I'm Justina Marsh, and with my dad, Pete, we are going to present a new show called Too Good to Be True. Together, we are aiming to discover more truths about this world and beyond. Do you have unanswered questions about the world? Do you ever wonder about aliens, conspiracy theories, or the universe? There are many shows discussing subjects such as pyramids or UFOs, but we want to relay this information based on our own research, including from spiritual means. Hopefully, listeners will be helped with their own beliefs and will appreciate the psychic insights that add to the previous research and information. We both look forward to sharing this insight and beginning this journey with our listeners. Visit xzbn.net for more information about when to listen. And as I promised, we are back with Nick Redfern. Uh, we're talking about Roswell UFO conspiracy exposing a shock, shocking and sinister secret. And as usual, I have trouble with my syntax and pronunciation, and I do not know why. Because I can speak much better when I'm not hooked up to all these gadgets, I guess. When we left, Nick was talking about the colonel, I guess, who had, gave him information about... Um, information about body snatchers in the desert. Yeah. We learned a little bit about how this came about. So continue on in that vein. Well, yeah. I mean, the one of the interesting things was that he said that the, the flight that came down on the Foster Ranch, it was a nighttime flight. Now, when I spoke to Keith Basterfield, and Keith, you know, told me the story, uh, his, his source, Martin, said that the one big thing more than anything else that hindered the recovery... Um, and largely led to the fact that the story came out was that this was a, a nighttime flight, and that by the time you know the, there was a search up for it because it was night, they didn't actually find it. You know, before the rancher Brazil got it first. Um, so you know, kind of little things like that, where you know somebody brings up something as an aside. Uh, which somebody else brought up as an aside before the book was actually published. And and there were actually quite a few threads in Martin's account, um, which absolutely 100% mirrored what I was published in Body Snatchers, but when Body Snatchers was still being written by me, or at the very latest point, when it was still in a Word document, in, you know, in the offices at Simon & Schuster, where nobody had seen it, and yet... Martin's information, in, as I said, in some cases, wasn't sort of vaguely similar. It was ex exactly the same. But you understand one of the problems I have, which is we don't have the name, so I can't, like, call the guy and bother him. And I, and I understand the reservations about doing that, mm. because if you, if you put people's real names in the book uh, without their permission and understanding, then they're going to be inundated with phone calls by people wanting to check the information themselves including drunks in bars. And that was one of the things that Bill Brazel had told me, Bill Brazel being mm -hmm. the son of the rancher, and, the, and Brazel having found bits of the material in, at the ranch at 
the, the ranch in uh, near Corona, was that uh, he, periodically they'd get dr- calls at two and three o'clock in the morning from drunks in bars wanting to know if the story was true. So you know, I get that, and and I hesitate to use people's names because I know what the people said to me. I know that that that. Yeah. These are real people, and this is what they said, which doesn't necessarily make it true, but that's what they said. And and if I publish their names, then they're going to end up with uh, the phone calls from people wanting to see if I'd accurately reported what they said. So I understand the hesitation, but the question is when we get to Body Snatchers in the Desert and the new book, Roswell UFO Conspiracy, which I try to mention as much as I can here um, – do you name names? Do you give us the names of real people who's at least their 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 past we can check out with Google? Yeah, I mean, Fred, I mean, this is something else I actually talk about in the book, where you know some of the criticisms of when body snatchers came out. For example, um, in body snatchers, despite what some people said, there are only two people in the book whose names are placed in, you know, like as an alias. They're the colonel, the colonel, and the other one is a woman who I listed as the Black Widow. But they're the only two whose names don't appear under their real names in the in the entire book. And with the new one, Martin is the only one um, whose name uh, is, is withheld. But the what a lot of people don't know, but you will know, being an author, is that particularly like with Simon and Schuster, whenever you do an interview, they insisted on having a release form from the uh, from the interviewees. And so, in other words, those release forms had the full name and address and contact information of the interviewees because Simon & Schuster's legal departments required them as you know today most publishers require a release if you do an extensive interview with someone or an interview period with someone Um, and I'm I'm just finding that problem now with my book on the Socorro uh, UFO landing Uh, I've just sent out the release forms and every that everything for uh permission to use uh, information that they may, may have published elsewhere or interviews with people about what they've said and done and do they object to having their name published in the book. So I get that. So sometimes you, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, but No, but I mean, the, as I said, the important thing is that when people said I was using anonymous sources, they weren't technically anonymous. They were unnamed. Now, some people say, well, that's splitting hairs, but it's actually not. Anonymous means... We don't know who they are. Unnamed was the fact that they were, they were willing to, the two people in, in Body Snatchers who I didn't name, they were willing to say what they wanted to say, and they did have to provide release forms to the publisher's legal department, but the agreement was that I would just come up with a, an alias for them. But they, you know, but um, Simon and Schuster had that or had that information you know, on file, there's, you know, so in that sense, I know that doesn't help the reader and it keeps the reader kind of frustrated, but, you know, it, it isn't like Simon and Schuster just had to rely on me saying, well, I met them and that's the end of it. You know, it wasn't like that at all. So. Well, when, when we did the first book on Roswell, uh, Don Schmidt and I, um, I spent 24 hours, not all at one time, on the phone with the legal department at Avon Books talking about that. And, and finally, the, the attorney I was speaking with asked me a question. Do you have these on tape? And I said, yes, because there was, there was a, a letter had been sent to the publisher claiming that we'd stolen information. 
And uh, we were trying to point out, yeah, we, we did this ourselves and we got the names. And another author whose name I will not mention actually used some of our material with neither credit nor attribution. And it's clearly material that Don Schmidt and I had gathered. But the point simply is that we had um, to, tell, to tell the publisher, yeah, we had the interviews on tape. We talked to the people. I have the tape. And if we didn't have tape, we had no stake in at the time. But most of the stuff was done on tape. Did you, did you use tape for your interviews or did you take notes? Well, it was actually a combination of both, really, you know, and it was depending on the circumstances that some of the people, you know, placed me under. Um, so a couple of them, one guy, one of the guys who I interviewed in England, you know, he was just full on for it just being, you know, uh, notes. Uh, and that was it. Um, but, you know, different people have different approaches. I mean, when I phoned uh, Martin in Australia, you know, he'd never met me or anything. He was just referred to me by Keith Basterfield. And he, you know, he was happy to, you know, tell me the whole thing over the phone. Um, so I think a lot of it just comes down to, you know, personal approach as to how they want to handle these things. Some people are fine. Other people get a little bit concerned, you know, when you start send, asking for release forms and things like that. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it protects, every, it protects the author, it protects the interviewee, and it protects the publisher. So... Um, you know, in that sense, I think I think it's a good thing that you know release forms do exist. But sometimes I have to admit it can kind of hinder things a little bit. You know, um, but I mean that's just one of the things. I mean another example from the book, which um, is kind of controversial as well. Um, I'm sure you'll remember when UFO updates was around. One of the sort of the more feisty and um, regular. Uh, contributors was Kathy Caston. You remember? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Well, Kathy, um, I got to know her um, after Body Snatchers came out because um, she had been quietly looking into the same angle and uncovered some similar threads. Um, and when Kathy unfortunately died in 2012, um, because I'd known her for so long, and she'd actually sent me quite a few files and reports that she'd put together on Roswell, which were never published. Um, her family um, decided to send her, my, uh, excuse me, decided to send me her entire UFO collection. Um, and I mean, it was literally thousands and thousands of pages of documentation and letters and correspondence and, and uh, investigative work etc you know just arrived on the doorstep in you know huge boxes thousands of pages and what amazed me was that although i knew she'd been digging into roswell she had um like her internal memo she'd written things like that for herself going back to 92 about how she had been speaking to people who claimed that one of the supposed crew members that came down on the Foster Ranch was taken, who survived the accident, and, but critically injured, was taken to uh, Fort Stanton, which is very near to the uh, Foster Ranch, while the, the dead crew were whisked off to, back to Roswell, or off to Roswell, I should say. Where, where, did, she, where, did, where did the flight originate? And I, I know I'm breaking your train of thought here, but where did the flight origi this, this flight originate? Well, that's a big that's a big question. Um, now, as far as the people I spoke to, the one that uh, took off from oh, excuse me, the one that came down uh, on the Foster Ranch supposedly was from White Sands. 
Well, then, and the reason I asked that question and broke in to ask the question, because it would seem to me that they would have returned the bodies to, to White Sands or the Holloman Air Force Base area, as opposed to going to Roswell, because the distance from the Foster Ranch, the Corona Ranch, where it came down, is actually it's probably a little bit closer to Alamogordo yeah. than it is to Roswell. So, And if that was where, where it originated, it seemed to me that's where things would have gone. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the reason for that would be. But, I mean, from, from my perspective, you know, what particularly interested me was the fact that back in 91 and 92, that um, although she never published this, um, Kathy had uncovered um, this material on the alleged crash, which in her files also said was like a, like a you know, like a balloon and vehicle combination and that you know what as i said one of the people was taken to fort stanton and the rest were taken to another location and and it was kind of interesting because you know there is this thread that that you've seen both sides of the coin you know the pro et angle and the human experimentation angle they all talk about two crash sites and a body found or excuse me one found alive you know and that was identical to what the colonel told me, and also what was in uh, Kathy's file. So somewhere, you know, there, I think there is a there's a truth to the the body's angle and a survivor and and two crash sites on the ranch. You know that that kind of that those strands seem to go through the whole story. Regardless Do we know? Of which side of you're on. Do we know who was uh, conducting the experiments? If it was White Sands, that would suggest it's an army experiment. Well, yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, there were certain things that were hazy because the people that, you know, I, I pointed this out in Body Snatchers and a lot of people overlooked this or just didn't realize, but the people I interviewed were not at Roswell, none of them, ever. They point, you know, I point that out quite graphically in the book, but people just seem to have overlooked it. But they actually read, the, to one of the guys read files in the 60s and two read files in the 50s. Now... They all claim that their reasoning for, or their reason for knowing what they claimed was the truth of Roswell was because all three of them worked on sort of like counterintelligence and psychological warfare operations, and two of them were brought in to work on sort of UFO disinformation programs, and in the process got to read how and why the Roswell affair. Um, was was essentially not you know what ufology assumes it is um so in other words it was you know it was more along the lines of um they would tell me they tell me certain amounts of information put it that way but i mean there's absolutely no doubt that a lot of material was held back and certainly that did well, relate to you know the point of your question about you know who was running it from white sands that i don't know and let me let me is, break in here i hate to break in here but I'm, I'm running out of time on this segment when we come back i'd like to talk about the japanese a a paperclip aspect of this and why the air force didn't find this when they were searching for information about the Roswell case and that sort of thing. Uh, Nick's book is Roswell UFO Conspiracy, Exposing a Shocking and Sinister Secret. And you'll be able to find a little bit more about this at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. We will be back in just a moment, so stick around. Hi, everyone. Rob McConnell here, and I wanted to spend a moment on Internet streaming. Everybody has heard about Internet streaming, but not many know much about it. 
Did you know the internet streams just about everything? Movies. From new releases to old classics. TV shows. Almost every show, every episode, and much more. But the question has always been, how do you do it? Well now, thanks to the folks at 123 Ready TV, I have the answer for you. They have developed a simple program app, 123 Ready TV, that you install on your Windows PC, Android smartphone, or Android tablet that can have you streaming like a pro in less than five minutes. You truly won't believe how much is available or how easy it is to do until you try. And for a one-time cost of only $19.99, this product is a real winner. To learn more about 123 Ready TV, visit our website at www.xzbn.net. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, soul balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A soul balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. There's a legend shared by many indigenous cultures of a time when the nations were cast to the four corners of the world. Each nation was given a body of sacred knowledge that held a different portion of the truth to preserve. True reality could not be known until all the nations reunited, combining the information. If a single one was missing, the world could not be reborn and darkness would prevail. The Science of Magic Radio is dedicated to reuniting the sacred knowledge. 
with the understanding none of us has all the answers, but together we can open new perceptions and possibilities. Through our combined vision, the world can be reborn into a place where darkness no longer prevails. Join me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the Science of Magic daily on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, or visit us at thescienceofmagic.net. And believe it or not, we're just running out of time here, and I can't believe it. These hours seem to go so quickly. Uh, I think it's the wonderful guests I managed to find to talk to us about this. Uh, when we went away, uh, Nick had been talking about the Japanese paperclip, and we all know about the other paperclip, the one that brought German scientists to the United States to develop rocketry. Um, do we have documentation about the Japanese paperclip? Uh, is there a history book I can look at or a place I can go to find out more about this? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, a, a massive amount of the Unit 731 files, um, you know, are now available at the, the National Archives. I mean, you, know, you can go there and see them. I mean, I'll give you an example of how this came to be. Uh, it all relates to what's called the Nazi War Criminal Records Interagency Working Group, or as it's abbreviated, the IWG. And they did a lot of work in the early 2000s um, to try and dig out as much material that was in the hands of like military archives in the US and to see what you know it related to in terms of like unit 731 and in the funnily enough they actually the IWG actually had um, a, a big meeting on June the 21st to 21st 2005 all about the search for the unit 731 files and it, <laughs> coincidentally June the 21st 2005 was the same day that the uh, the body snatchers in the desert came out, and in a kind of a strange situation, I actually had a phone call from a representative of the IWG um, asking about all the research that I'd done into Unit 731 um, in the book. But regardless of that, uh, the IWG, um, if you if, you know if you go look on look up Unit 731 at um, the National Archive, you can see they're all in PDF, all the files that were brought over. Now, what's particularly interesting is that one of the people um, who was at the forefront of getting the um, Unit 73 files, excuse me, the 731 files from Japan over to the United States uh, was a high-ranking officer, Charles Willoughby. It turns out Charles Willoughby was very good friends with um, Philip Corso, who wrote the book The Day After Roswell. So that kind of makes me wonder if possibly, you know, if Willoughby was bringing the Unit 731 files over and knew of Broswell, and he was very good friends with Corso, did Corso know something of Roswell, and did that have any bearing on his book? Now, that's speculation, I, I admit, but I do find the threads, again, you know, to be intriguing. Uh, unit 731, that was the, Jap the Japanese designation for their unit? Yeah, it was basically, you know, it was a, a supposedly like a scientific medical uh, organization for, you know, determining things like, you know, how, to how tolerant the body could be to like low pressure, high pressure, you know, cold temperatures, high temperatures. And this was sort of perceived as being valuable, you know, in terms of the early formative years of high altitude, 
uh, flights and you know early years of rocketry. Now the big difference, of course, is that um, the Nazis who were brought over, uh, the German scientists, were working the field of rocketry. The Unit 731 people, they were dealing with sort of human experimentation, and some of it sounds like it was just done for the sake of doing it because they were warped. You know, I mean, they did terrible experiments like amputating people's arms and then fitting them onto somebody else's body and to see why they, you know, why they wouldn't take and just blasting them with hose pipes, you know, with freezing cold water just to see how the body reacts. Well, anybody would guess how the body reacts, you know. So what I was told was that because the experiments that they undertook were so inflammatory, so to speak, that nobody ever wanted to talk about this because, you know, it was almost as if the line had been crossed, you know. It was bad enough having to work with the Nazis, but if they hadn't fallen in, you know, if we hadn't got them, the Russians would have got them and possibly have got a, a head. So it was kind of like doing a Faustian pact, you know. You have to do what you have to do to survive, really, I guess. But you're not suggesting any of these experiments took place in the United States. You're suggesting they took place during the Second World War in this Japanese yes. unit 731. Yeah, oh, no, no, no. No, the, as far as we know, you know, the, Jap the unit 731 scientists, you know, the, 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 they were not brought over and, you know, and implanted into the United States. But what I was told did happen was that the people who worked on these massive balloon designs, they came over. But no, the Unit 731 people were pretty much, you know, where they could be. They were, you know, they were prosecuted for war crimes, etc. But um, but it was reportedly the scientists who were working on some of these huge, larger balloon arrays. Now, in terms of, you know, your other question before the um, the break about, you know, why we can't, why the Air Force couldn't find the documentation. Again, there was almost like a unanimous. Um, explanation from all the people I spoke to that because because some of this you know the documentation but not the people kind of led back to unit 731 and these human experimentation experiments uh, guinea pigs etc it was kind of seen as crossing the line and not entirely legal reportedly that when these experiments occurred and really they didn't learn too much from them and there were accidents as well the decision was taken to shred, burn, destroy the original documentation. And, of course, there would be no reason to keep, you know, the bodies of the people. And there'd certainly be no reason to keep shredded balloons or the lifting body. Now, if it was a UFO that came down, everything would be kept. You know, the bodies, the craft, because it would be unique material that could be studied. But if it's, you know, semi-illegal experiments using balloons and glider-type lifting bodies and human guinea pigs, you could understand why somebody may have said, let's just destroy the lot, let's get rid of it. And that may explain why the Air Force of the 1990s couldn't find anything. And, and as I point out in the book, I don't view the Air Force as the bad guys when they did their investigation. I'm very different approach to a lot of people in the Roswell community or the UFO community. I actually think their search was a legitimate search, but they came up empty-handed felt the responsibility was on their part to find an answer and went with Mogul. But I think that, you know, the, there's a possibility that if it really was sort of controversial human experimentation, the documentation may well have been just destroyed, completely destroyed, to protect, you know, those that were involved. 
But then again, you know, we have the story of people like Martin in Australia who's... So maybe something survived, but everybody I spoke to said as far as they knew, you know, it was a case of shred it, burn it, etc., etc. Well, I get confused here when you talk about some of this because we're talking about illegal – well, we're talking about experiments conducted by Unit 731 in, during the Second World War, which based, basically were war crimes. And then you talk about experimentation, um, semi-legal, semi-illegal experimentation. Did that – some of that experimentation take place in the United States? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the story that I got, so as so everybody kind of understand, is that, you know, that they weren't, we're not talking about, you know, major war criminals being brought over, but what was brought over was the documentation, and this is what the National Archives now have on show. Um, the, what happened was that the, the files were reportedly brought over because that, those files, despite the nature of the experiments, told the story of how, you know, the sort of things like high and low uh, pressure and altitude experiments have been undertaken by Unit 731. So it was the documents that were needed to be brought over to sort of help understand, you know, the nature of how the human body would react in these sort of high-altitude circumstances, etc. But because some of this material was coming from the Unit 731 files, that was something that nobody wanted to talk about. Now, in terms of the flights... The story that I got was the 1947 flights. Some of them included Japanese people who were working on the post-Fugo programs. Others were handicapped people taken from hospitals and asylums. And it was was those angles that prompted the sort of grave secrecy because it was perceived as crossing the line. And when, you know, people higher up in the government realised what had gone on, it was all stamped out and, you know, this, is, this has gone too far, this has crossed the line, and, and then it was a case of just destroying everything. But word of mouth kept the legend going. So, you know, if, if the story's true, the big problem may be that there really is no documentation left, you know. But, and if, but if it's a UFO that came down, then there is a chance of us proving it because that material will be so unique it, it would never be destroyed. Well, Nick, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, this has been fascinating. Um, your book, uh, Roswell, UFO Conspiracy, is that, that's out now. We can buy that now if we want. Yeah, well, actually, because I, I mentioned you three, three or four times in the book, maybe more. So I'll send you a copy if you just sell, um, message me your address, and then I'll send a copy out to you. I'll do, I'll do that. I was hoping that I could get the listeners to buy copies of your book so you'll become rich and famous. And, <laughs> well, nobody and what, gets Richard famous from UFOs. <laughs> and, and, and stop slumming on the radio. Thank you very much, Rick. I, uh, Nick, I appreciate you uh, taking time to share that information with us, and I hope that a lot of people will be interested in Roswell UFO conspiracy, exposing a shocking and sinister truth, or secret, I'm sorry, secret, sinister secret. All right, thanks, Kevin. Thank you. We will be back next week uh, with another show. I'm going to talk to James Clarkson about uh, his UFO investigations in the Northwest. And we might uh, talk a little bit about Roswell as well. And as I say, you can uh, learn a little bit more about this. And I'll have some links up for you as well so that you can follow up on this uh, about the um, shocking secret here at Roswell uh, on the blog www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And in uh, sort of a... uh, I guess uh, looking at another 
angle of the Roswell case. Take a look at Roswell in the 21st century uh, because it gives us some idea of what happened there. And as I say, we will be back next week with Jim Clarkson talking about UFOs, his investigations, MUFON, what's going on with them, and about um, the Roswell UFO case. So we will return in 167 hours with another exciting episode of A Different Perspective.